0: Uh, well, today um, I am taking a, another break from uh, preaching. Were you blessed by Joel Seymour uh, and his ministry last week? I told you you would be. And uh, we were so, uh, so blessed to have him here. And today, one of our elders is uh, bringing the message. Uh, most of you know Jeff Hammond quite well. He is one of the founding members of the church, he has been an elder uh, with us for about eight years now. Uh, he uh, is in administration at Kirkersville Elementary and does a great job there uh, been a uh, respected teacher and coach in this community for what 's it been Jeff like twenty where is he twenty years now twenty five years he just doesn 't look old enough to have been doing anything for twenty five years does he I mean the hair looks old enough to to which I know a lot about. Uh, But uh, otherwise, he just doesn't look old enough to have been a teacher for 25 years. But loved and respected, he's loved and respected here. He's just an all-around great guy, uh, kind of a model of uh, of servanthood, and um, you you know, just serves so faithfully in so many ways. And I I sense I'm just droning on and on about him too much, so I'm just going to stop. But why don't you uh, welcome Jeff uh, as he comes?
1: Actually, I'm going into my 25th year. I just wanted to clear that up. Um, loved and hated, yes. Loved and hated throughout the... Well, um, welcome, everybody. Good morning. I've got a, quite a bit of family here today, so I just wanted to welcome my family. Um, my, my newlywed daughter, Aaron, and her husband, Michael, are here. Yeah. And my mom is here, my daughter Jamie, and Audrey, and JC, welcome JC, my mother and father-in-law are here, and my nephew Ashton, which I don't think you've been here before, welcome Ashton. So, a little bit of pressure, hang on real quick, in through the nose, out through the mouth. Well, I like to... I'm an administrator. I work with uh, kindergartners and first graders. Six, 600. It's over 600. And so they're great. I, I write down, I document things they say to me when they leave. Uh, they just say the funniest things. So just wanted to share just a couple with you very quickly. Um, there's a boy that, um, you know, he, he's what I call a frequent flyer. I see him a lot in my, cl- in my office. He's... Uh, he's a kindergartner he comes to my office and he'll sit there and he'll suck his thumb and I'm like oh maybe he should have waited another year but uh (laughs) boys just take longer to mature so anyway when I don't see him in my office I try to be positive and like hey how's your day going you know are you doing a great job today making great choices and so it was at the end usually he says yeah I'm doing well I'm on blue whatever that means he's you know he's doing great um so one day, he was uh, lining up to, to uh, get picked up, and I, I was confident he had a great day. And so I was like, hey, Logan, how'd your day go? Did you do a great job? Did you make great choices? And he, he stopped. He was like, well, not actually. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, we have those days, right? At the end of the day, God says, Jeff, you know, that's not actually his voice, but I'm just doing it for dramatic... <laughs> Jeff, were you loving, were you kind, were you patient, did you show self-control? Well, not actually. (laughs) But uh, another time, um, another time I I was talking with him and uh, lost my train of thought. See, I'm nervous, lost my train of thought already. Uh, Okay, I'll start the sermon. (laughs) Can you remind me of the story? Oh, that's right. Thank you. Woo! (laughs) Got to do more crossword puzzles. All right. So I see him again, and I say, hey, Logan. Uh, You know, how are things going? You know, whatever. I said, "Um, you look a little tired. He's like, yeah, I'm tired. Why are you tired? Well, I was at church, and... You know that, and so I I I asked him. I said, "Well, what church do you attend?" And, and he had no idea. You know, and so I asked another great question. I was like, "Well, what kind of church is it?" You know, I'm asking a kindergartner. You know, is it evangelical, Catholic? <laughs> you yeah. know, so I'm like, "What kind of church is it?" He goes, "Um, it's the singing kind, the eating kind." <laughs> And I said, wow, that is a great church. It's a great church. So I'm contemplating at our uh, next meeting to, to uh, suggest to Brian that our mission statement for our new church plant in Perry County would be, it's, the, it's, a, it's a great church. It's the singing kind of church. It's the eating kind of church. And it's the love Jesus kind of church. Anyway, I'm not sure how that will go over. Well, I've got a story of a boy Quick story. A boy had been disobedient at home. His mother sent him to the corner and said, you sit there. To which he responded with folded arms slumped in his chair. I might be sitting on the, ins- on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. Well, I think about how I can relate to that. Obedience isn't a positive word these days. For some, it seems cold and harsh, and for others, it carries overtones of legalism, for religion and in and, and other areas, other venues of our life. Perhaps for all of us, it challenges our inherent drive for autonomy and this individualistic bent that pervades our culture. As Americans, we don't want anyone telling us what to do, not even God. I read a quote somewhere by Woody Allen, and he summed it up pretty well. He said, The heart wants what it wants. You know, the heart wants what it wants. It's pretty basic. I was reminded again, um, when we read through Kings this past um, spring and early summer, about the importance of obedience to God. You know, obedience is a, a major theme throughout the Bible. See if this sounds familiar. Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, began his reign as king of Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He followed the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for he married the daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem one year. His mother's name was Athaliah, granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. He followed the ways of the house of Ahab and did evil in the eyes of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done. It says the same of Jehoiakim and Zedekiah and a bunch of others. Isn't it a breath of fresh air, at least I find it, when you come across an Asa or a Joash who, um, in which the Bible says they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In my first year of teaching, first and second year of teaching, I taught with a, a lady who, uh, right next door, and she worked with kids that uh, had behavior issues, uh, uh, you know, emotional disturbance types of kids. And uh, she and I worked really well together. In fact, we've worked together to this day. She's retired, but she comes back and, and helps us out a little bit. Um, but, um, you know, it was great for my first year. She would have me, when the kids earned enough, you know, they, were, they behaved well enough, they earned enough points, You know, I would shoot baskets with them or throw a ball with them and just love the kids. They were great, you know, and uh, I just uh, enjoyed that. Well, I'm usually pretty good with classroom management, this type of stuff. It was my first year and there was this boy named Tony and Tony, to put it mildly, was a thorn in my side. (laughs) Tony's not his real name, so, uh, but this Tony, he was mouthy. Usually I can handle mouthy kids. He was disrespectful. Usually I can. He was disobedient. Boy, I just, I just had a hard time with him. So this teacher said, hey, why don't I help you out? She said, maybe, you know, maybe I can work with Tony and we'll see what we can do. And she's real meek, you know, just very quiet. And, and anyway, So she started to meet with Tony and 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 all of a sudden I'm I'm noticing his behavior improving and improving and improving. And I'm like, this is a miracle. You know, God God has stepped in and done something here because this is this is amazing, his turnaround. So finally I went to her, I'm like, what? What did you do? What is the secret? What are you doing with Tony? And so she had like this index card and she had this crude drawing something like that, crude drawing of like a road that forked off. And she just basically would talk to Tony and say, Now, Tony, at the end of the day, said, Did you make good choices and go this way? Or did you make poor choices and go this way? And, you know, he would sit and talk with her. Now, part of it wasn't, was not the fact that she was giving him attention and, and talking to him. But it was so basic. I'm like, this is so simple. It works. I can't believe it. Well, this topic, obedience, is basic. It's very elementary. When we boil it down, we either choose to obey or we choose what the heart wants, what we want. The fork in the road is our opportunity to choose. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, uh, a Roman emperor... Uh, was once once said he he listed the traits of a successful person he had four of them and one of them was steady obedience to what he knows to be right well today I'm not gonna this talk isn't about legalism or earning salvation my goal today is to motivate persuade encourage inspire myself and you towards steadfast continuous obedience because it's the right thing to do yes but also, more importantly, it's very pleasing to God. It brings honor and glory to God. And this isn't a thorough look at everything. These are just uh, six things that I, I think were highlighted for me today to bring to you. So my title for my sermon today is A Case for Obedience. Obedience is the appropriate response to God's goodness. Psalm 118 starts in verse 1 saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. It ends in verse 29 with the same thing Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. I looked up some definitions of goodness, and here are some that I found goodness, excellence of quality, the best part of anything, essence, strength. God's goodness is one of his excellent qualities. God's goodness is one of his best parts. God's goodness, or goodness, is God's essence. He exudes goodness. Goodness is his strength. You know, it's it's appropriate to have a sizable dose of healthy fear in the Lord, or of the Lord. But a huge positive motive for obeying him is his goodness. Once you learn his goodness and trust in that, it becomes easier to obey you, obey you know out of love. As I prepared for this, uh, I remember saying, you know, I'm I'm a little stuck here, God. You're going to have to give me, you know, please give me some things that you want to get across here. Give me something or change it or whatever. And a time later, I remember uh, an impression that was set that, that basically was like, remind them of my goodness. So, God's I want to ask you, how has he displayed his goodness to you? Do you keep records somewhere, notes or a journal? If not, I would definitely encourage you to do so. I look at my life and there's this time after time after that I've received God's goodness, especially when I really don't deserve it, and I'm just amazed. I continue to be amazed to this day when I reflect on things. Recently, there's been some amazingly good things that have happened, and I immediately sense the Holy Spirit reminding me of God's goodness and, 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 and that he's shown his love for me. It served for motivation to continue to fight the good fight, continue to pick myself up. These instances help me to pause and reflect and experience his thoughtfulness, his kindness, his gentleness, or in other words, his goodness. I want to quickly read some lyrics of a song called God, You're So Good to Me by Terry Clark, just some of the lyrics. God, you're so good to me. You've always been so good to me. I'll sing it through eternity. God, you're so good. I want to sing your praise all night long and every day. I'll stand and worship you my whole life through. God, you're so good to me. You've always been so good to me. I'll sing it through eternity. God, you're so good. I encourage you to reflect and record on how God has been good to you think about it often i believe it'll motivate you towards obedience because of how good he really is my second reason for you to choose obedience is obedience is our sacrifice obedience is our sacrifice first samuel 15:22 says and samuel said has the lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the lord Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. In the Old Testament, an offer would come to God bringing a lamb or turtle dove or whatever it was to offer a sacrifice. He brought that sacrifice to the holy place. It was given over to the priest. The priest took it, slew it, put it on the altar, and offered it to God. Well, obviously, that system has come to come to an end. There are no more dead sacrifices. Now what God wants are living sacrifices, living men and women. And so the essential act of the Old Testament Jews' life, his religious life, was a presentation of a sacrifice as an indication of his genuineness of faith. The central act, however, of the new covenant believer is the presentation of his heart, soul, or mind, all that they are as a living sacrifice. Obedience, in a sense, my take on it, has taken the place of animal sacrifice. It's our spiritual act of worship, to metaphorically put something to death on the altar, our will with every act of obedience. It's very hard, isn't it? Think back, you know, how hard obedience can be sometimes. It's simple, it's simple, but it sure isn't easy. It's not easy. And 12:1 says, Romans 12:1 says, "Therefore I urge you, brothers and s- sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God." That is your true and p- proper worship. Obedience requires giving all we have, putting to death the things that the heart wants. Gladys Allward is an example of a person who sacrificed her life as a missionary in China during the 1930s as a young woman she left her home in England and sailed to China. Here she opened a home for orphaned children who had spent uh, who had um, been put on the streets, left to starve and wander around. Well when the Japanese invaded China, Gladys was forced to flee with only one assistant for twelve days. She led more and a hundred orphans over the mountains towards free China. In the face of extreme difficulty and danger, she devoted her life to becoming a mother to each of them. Years after her mission service, when she was publicly honored, she explained her amazing mission work with the children like this. Listen to her sacrifice. I did not choose this. I was led by God into it. I'm really not more interested in children than I am in any other people. But God gave me to understand that this is what he wanted me to do, so I did it. I encourage you to view view obedience as your sacrifice. You don't have to be a missionary to be pleasing to God. Just be obedient where you are with what you've been given to do. Obedience is an act of love or love in action. How do we obey without falling into legalism? You might be thinking... Well, the answer is love. And furthermore, how do you love God? And I'm not talking about the thing, uh, something that is a noun, that kind of love. I mean the verb kind of love, action, doing. You know, we show our spouses or children or friends love by writing notes, buying flowers, putting gas in their car, cutting the grass, giving a compliment, we, give an, we get an opportunity, in my view, to give something back, so to speak, to the Father who first loved us and gave Jesus to die for us. We can keep love on God, I, I believe, by obeying. In John 14, it, it is just riddled with these things. Here's 14, John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, keep my commands. And then later in 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them, is the one who loves me. And then in 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. In 2 John 1, 6, it says, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. Actively loving God could look something like this. God, I don't want to forgive this person. You guys have all been there, right? But you've asked me to, and I'm going to obey God, your word word says not to worry, and yet I find myself worrying about everything. I believe your word, and I ask that you help me to obey in your power. Father, your word tells us to deny ourselves, and I feel led by your spirit to give up this particular habit. I choose to do this, Lord. Give me strength. Father, you tell us not to be judgmental. I don't want to be critical of my spouse in this moment. Please help me to hold my tongue. Please change my heart. I found a quote by Robert Heinlein. It says, love is the condition in which the happiness of another person is essential to our own. Obedience is a powerful way to actively demonstrate our love to God. And the fourth reason that I would encourage you to choose obedience, is that obedience is transformative. Obedience is transformative. Have you considered that our wariness of obedience may be keeping us from one of the great keys to the enjoyment of God and the transformation of our lives? Are you aware that the Bible and the saints throughout history affirm the insight of John Calvin, that, who was quoted as saying, all true knowledge of God is born... Out of obedience. Romans 12, 2 talks about being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And 2 Corinthians 5, 17 talks about anybody in Christ is a new creation. 1 Peter 2 tells us to crave pure spiritual milk that we may grow up in our salvation. Well, you see, God wants us to be transformed. We have... In in our lives have a tendency to go so far, I don't know if you've experienced this, and then spiritually just camp out where we're comfortable. You know, in my life, I've uh, noticed that God allows me for short camping trips, but I like to extend them to months, and if I can, into years. Problem is, we stay there way too long many times. We might get stuck in a spiritual rut and struggle to figure out how to escape. And if we examine and pray, I think you'll find in most cases that God is asking or pointing out an area of our life where we need to be obedient. He's been asking before and now he's asking again. And obedience is the requirement in order to move forward. We had an administrator's uh, meeting um, a few weeks ago and uh, beginning of summer. During the meeting, our superintendent asked us to read a book called Mindset, so he passed some out to people that didn't have them. And in the book, the author, Carol Dweck, argues that there are two basic mindsets there's the fixed mindset, and there's the growth mindset. And she attacks all areas of rel- Uh, of life, persuading and attempting to teach the reader how to develop the growth mindset in different areas. And it has been helpful. It's worked me to understand and and analyze different areas of my life where um, this growth mindset would be, you know, helpful to me. Well, in the the book, there's a section where Dweck highlights uh, Jack Welch. And some of you may be familiar with Jack Welch. He, Jack Welch, is... One of the most widely recognized business leaders of our time, and um, uh, I may not be speaking for, for the younger people, but before, you know, uh, in my time, how about that? In my time, and, and many in here, he was known, um, you know, as as the guru. Uh, he took over. Uh, he was the CEO of General Electric in 1980. Took over. When he did, the company was valued at 14 billion. Twenty years later, the company was valued at $490 billion. It was the most valuable company in the world at that time, according to Dweck. Fortune magazine called Welsh the most widely admired, studied, and imitated CEO of his time. The magazine went on to say, "...his total economic impact is impossible to calculate, but must be a staggering multiple of his GE performance." However, Jack Welsh was not always the leader he learned to be. In 1971, nine years before becoming the CEO, Welsh was being considered for a promotion as the head. Uh, when the head of GE's Human Resources wrote a cautioning memo. In the memo, it was noted that despite Welsh's many strengths, the appointment, and I quote, carries with it more than the usual degree of risk. The memo went on to say that Welsh was arrogant, couldn't take criticism, depended too much on his talent instead of hard work, and wasn't relying on his knowledgeable staff. Those aren't very good signs for somebody being promoted or looking to maybe be the CEO someday. But Jack Welsh was humbled through many lessons and went on a path of desiring growth. When it came time for his chance to be CEO of GE, Welsh, along with two other highly qualified candidates, had to convince the reigning CEO that they were the best person for the job. Welsh made his pitch based on his capacity to grow. Very interesting strategy. Some of us might use that in the future. He didn't claim that he was a genius or the greatest leader who ever lived. He promised to develop, and he made good on that promise. We are challenged by God's word to be transformed, to crave uh, spiritual milk, to strive for holiness and perfection. And that seems like a daunting task, I think. You may be thinking, well, how do I create, plan, organize this transformation? There's so many areas I need to improve. Where do I start? Or I'm too busy to be transformed. Well, don't concern yourself with with this task. Um... The Holy Spirit has your ITP, or ITP. Um, In education, we like to use acronyms, so I've created this. He's created your individualized transformation plan. And all you have to do is be obedient. You just have to be obedient where you are with what God has given you to do at that time. I think it was Oswald Chambers who said, one step forward in obedience is worth years of studying about it. And Diedrich Bonhoeffer is quoted as saying, one act of obedience is better than 100 sermons. And in the last uh, service I said, that would only be 50 of Brian's (laughs) sermons. Or 75, maybe. Maybe 75. See, the roadmap towards transformation is marked with opportunities for obedience. And I encourage you to allow God to transform you by walking in obedience. The fifth reason I encourage you to be obedient, is that obedience is investing in the future. Deuteronomy 6, 1 and 2 says, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, so, and so that you may enjoy a long life. This is a powerful verse. This verse appears primarily directed at parents and grandparents, but, but I, I still think it doesn't matter whether you're aunt, uncle, son, daughter, brother, sister, grandparent, friend, mentoree, God is speaking to the community, uh, the nation of Israel. If you are obedient... You are, according to Steve Farrar in his book, "Anchor Man," you are investing spiritual capital that grows exponentially for your future, but also pays dividends to other people, in this case your family. Ferrar compares obedience and the spiritual results as compounding interest. He argues that we have an opportunity to leave a spiritual legacy with each act of obedience. Kind of an interesting concept writes, There is nothing more that God would enjoy doing than opening an intersparing account for you that will be in your family for generations. He tells in his book about a friend of his named Crawford Lauretz, who he met at Promise Keepers after hearing him speak. He found out in Crawford's study on his wall was a big family tree that was handwritten by his grandfather Milton And it all begins with a man named Peter Loritz. Peter was a slave who gained his freedom at the end of the Civil War, about 150 plus years, or whatever it is. Crawford's great-grandfather, Peter, helped establish a small town uh, not too far from what is now the Charlotte Motor Speedway. Peter worked hard his whole life and managed to scrape together a few hundred dollars. With that, he purchased some acreage, which is now the town of Conover, North Carolina. Peter could neither read nor write, but Peter loved the Lord Jesus. And he knew the Bible from sermons and stories that he heard. Peter obeyed the Bible to the best of his ability, and he loved the Savior of the Bible. He met a godly woman, married her. Peter and his wife had three children two sons and a daughter. One of the boys was named Milton, and he's the one who wrote the family tree. Milton and his wife had seven boys and seven girls. And one of those boys, in fact, the youngest, was Crawford's father. Peter taught his children to love and follow Christ. He showed his sons how to be a man. They saw him work hard, love their mother, love them. The children and grandchildren grew up to follow Christ, work hard, love their spouses and children. Now, the Lord's family tree obviously isn't perfect. But there is a strong tradition of husbands loving their wives. There is a strong tradition of husbands that do not walk out on their families. And there's a strong tradition of Jesus Christ being the center of each day's responsibilities. Ferrar goes on to say, because of Peter Loritz's surrender and obedience to the Lord, there has been a strong spiritual legacy, compounding interest, if you will, that has been accruing for more than 150 years. Some of you may be thinking, like I was, well, what about a home where there's no testimony to God or recognition of him at all, where there's no evidence of the Lord to be found, and yet these homes are orderly, moral, loving homes. They're a joy to be in. Where the children are obviously well-adjusted and able to cope with life. Have you seen that phenomenon? How do you explain it? Some would say, what's the difference then? What does Christianity add? Ray Stedman is a man who studied this phenomenon of Christianity and its effects on genealogy. He gives his findings. The answer, according to Stedman, is that if you investigate a home like that, you will find just a generation or so back, there has been some significant Christian exposure somewhere in the family. In other words, secular homes of that character are living on the capital faith of a previous generation. And in a sense, that's what our whole nation is doing and has been doing. We've been living on the spiritual bank account of our forefathers. And according to Stedman, The resources upon which we as a people have been drawing are just about depleted. Abraham Lincoln said, What is important is not who my ancestors were. What is important is what my children and grandchildren have become. What kind of spiritual legacy could you leave as you continue to live an obedient life? Does the opportunity to invest in someone else's future motivate you to continue with obedience? And the last reason that I'm going to go over today for you to choose and I to choose obedience is that obedience may help prolong God's judgment. Um, I think I've said this before, but I like this saying by Billy Graham. He once said, if God doesn't judge the United States, then he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. (laughs) Joel Rosenberg wrote a blog some weeks ago saying, America's on the wrong track. Almost 7 in 10 people believe this. 26 think uh, that America is going in the right direction. In fact, only 37% feel that America's best days are ahead of us. And the situation is growing critical. We're not just in a season of decline. We're facing implosion. Consider where we are in the summer of 2015. Violence is exploding in our cities, schools, and churches. The horrific mass murder inside the church in South Carolina is terrible enough, but it's just one of many innumerable mass killings that have become epidemic in the U.S. The Supreme Court has recently ruled on biblical marriage. Brian will be addressing this topic. Abortions are occurring at more than 1 million each year. Since 1973, there have been 57 million Americans murdered through abortion. Marriage and families are imploding. Drug and alcohol abuse is epidemic. Abroad, Iran is closing in on the bomb. ISIS is exploding across the Middle East, gaining ground in Syria, Libya, and Iraq. The Kremlin is growing more aggressive. The list goes on. Rosenberg goes on to say, Washington, D.C., no matter who's in there, cannot fix all that ails us. We need to humble ourselves and pray like we've never prayed before. Not all is lost, however. There are many Americans who love Christ dearly, love his word, are seeking every day to walk with the Lord, love their neighbors, care for the poor, walk steadfastly in obedience, and are making the good news of God's redeeming love known to their lost and drifting nation. But warning signs are flashing everywhere. Alarm bells are ringing everywhere. Far too many self-professed Christians are groggy or asleep. I just want to read a couple of things that um, start off maybe as scary, but but end... um, a little promising very promising Matthew 21:24 and Psalm 107:19 For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress 2nd Chronicles 7:14 If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven forgive them their sins and heal their land. What if, what if the obedience of his church combined obviously with God's great mercy is one of the things holding God's wrath back from our nation right now? Joel two thirteen and 14 says, rend your heart and not, and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. It only takes a moment's reflection to realize the cost of obedience or disobedience has been very high in our own lives, in our country, throughout the world. But it doesn't have to continue in that trajectory. We have the opportunity to fight implosion and sow seeds of revival in our own lives first, our communities in the U.S. and and around the world. And we can do this. One very strong way to do this is through obedience. We're about out of time here today. And the purpose, hopefully, was to persuade and motivate us towards steadfast obedience. You know, I've spent a lot of time telling you the why. um, But you may be asking, what about the how part? Well, that would be another long, long sermon, the how part, but let, let me just sum it up this way Jesus set the example, and he supplies the power. It's just like writing a sermon, raising kids, cultivating a strong marriage. If you do it in your own power solely, you're doomed to fail. Why don't we go ahead and stand?